Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Well, good morning, Upper Room. Uh, Here we are to the final uh, sermon in this series. It's been a pleasure for me to be here with you. And I trust that it has been a profitable journey for us together. The year was 1977. It was about three years before I was to quit my job with Atomic Energy of Canada and become a pastor at Rexdale Alliance Church. I happened to be teaching an adult Sunday school class at that time. And this particular night that I'm talking about, Sham, my wife, was away singing somewhere. And I put the kids down to sleep. They were four and two years old at that time. And I was going over my notes for the Sunday morning Sunday school class lesson. I was using a commentary by a Dutch pastor named Andrew Murray when I was totally unexpectedly sandbagged by what I read. When we trust too much to the intellect and religion, and great care is not taken to receive each word as from God into the heart, the heart gets close to the living voice of God. The mind is satisfied with beautiful thoughts and pleasant feelings, but the heart does not hear God. It is an unspeakably solemn thought that with a mind occupied with religious truth and feeling stirred at times by the voice of humans, the heart may be close to the humble, direct communion with God and a stranger to all the blessing that the living word can bring. It was this quote that kick-started my personal prayer life. As I mentioned to you at the beginning of this series, uh, after, shortly after I became a Christian, I learned to pray in public. Uh, and I could do that with integrity and with confidence. But my personal private prayer life was almost non-existent until I read this. Deeply convinced, next morning I set the alarm for an hour earlier. My kids were still young at that time. I had to get to work by a certain time. And so that's the only way I could make time for this. And I stumbled half asleep down to the study. And out of my words came, mouth came these words, Father, thank you for what I'm about to eat. I was saying grace. That was my introduction to a fundamental problem that all of us face. When driven by some conviction or other that we not to speak, pray, we start and we run slap bang into the middle of a problem. What do I say? In most cases, we kind of tend to repeat the prayer request that someone may give to us back to God and attach a Lord you know at the end of it. It's mostly informing God of the problem, not really praying. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, when I was actually working through some of the details of this message, we happened to be in conversation with a family, a couple that were sharing some burdens on their heart. And the lady um, was saying that, I have a son, let's call him John. Uh, John is living common law with someone, and I'm not quite sure about John's own faith. Whenever we try to talk to him about marriage, he just completely shuts down the conversation. But, but he's also a respectable young man who respects us as his parents. Can you please pray for me? Now, if this prayer request was shared at a typical prayer meeting, here's how the prayers might go. And I'm going to kind of react and uh, exaggerate and overstate it to make the point. Lord, we, we pray for so-and-so. We pray that you'll just help her in her anxiety. Lord, you know that John is living common law with someone. Lord, you know we don't really know where his faith stands. But Lord, you know he doesn't like to talk about marriage at all. And you know how he shuts down his family. And yet we know that he's a respectable good man. So will you please help him and you please help his mother not be anxious. Now, as I said, I've overstated the case. But basically, most of our prayers simply repeat a problem back to God with the Lord you know, as if he doesn't know and he needed us to inform him of that. 
What happens after a few moments of this kind of praying? Silence. And then our minds immediately go to the active part of our mind, those relentless to-do lists that we talked about last week, or drifting to some dimension of our life at home or at work that happens to be engaging us at that moment. Now, for those of you who are from the liturgical background, your problem with words is slightly different. In your um, church tradition, maybe the church's services were identical and you read from the prayer book and the pastor or the priest did his part and you have used those words so many times that you actually know them by heart and so you can speak to them without even thinking about what you're saying. One man called it praying with the mouth disengaged from the mind. You're not really praying to God, you're actually talking at God. You're just saying your prayers. Maybe someone told you to say a hundred Hail Marys or three Our Fathers. There's no relational dimension involved in this kind of praying at all. And to use the evangelical language and jargon, we're having our devotions or doing our devotions without actually expressing devotion to some living person that we actually feel deeply connected to. And for all these reasons, prayer becomes deeply unsatisfying actually boring and we quit after a while. So what, what is the conviction that is going to deal with this problem of words? We're in this series where we're looking at the kind of conviction that we need to have that will actually take our prayer from being a belief to a value in our lives. We began by looking at the fact that life is war. And this rescues us from that peacetime mentality that leads to a life that is privatized, inward focused and disengaged from involvement in Christ's kingdom. And then we looked at the conviction that apart from Jesus, we can do absolutely nothing. This deals with the problem of self-sufficiency, what the Bible calls reliance on the arm of flesh. The concomitant conviction that gone along with this was that, but it through prayer, we actually participate in the very creative work of God and something always happens when we pray. Something we can't say about anything else that we do for certain. And thirdly, last week we learned that the eternal God who's outside of time can touch time and transform us who are in time. And this rescues us from the tyranny of the urgent. Today brings us to the fourth and final conviction. This one having to do with the issue of words. And for our point of departure... We'll look at Jesus' words in John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Every phrase and the sequence is crucial. First of all, it says, if you abide in me. That, that word suggests remaining or being connected to Jesus in some way. Not just a mechanical connection, but an organic one. Jesus began this section by talking about him being the vine and we being the branches. Now, how are the various stems of a plant connected to the central vine? You probably had this experience where sometime in a garden you went to, or in a flower pot that you might have. In, in a richly blooming set of flowers, there's one particular set of flowers and the leaves attached to it that seem to be wilting. And you know the reason for that is when you trace it back, you will find that that particular stem has almost been broken off from the central branch. It's connected mechanically, but it's not connected organically anymore. Many people have this mechanical connection with Jesus, you know because they were Christian or because they are members of a church. But Jesus says, no, if you remain in me, if you're organically connected, if you're in a relationship with me, if that's true, and my words abide in you, he says, and my words remain in you. Same word, my words are at home with you. One of the crucial dimensions of being 
intimately connected and organically connected with Jesus has to do with receiving his words into our lives. And as he speaks to us, as he communicates to us, that's another half of that abiding in God. We get to know him and we get to hear him. Scriptures become more and more an integral, natural part of our life. And we hear him speak to us regularly and scriptures are the primary means by which he speaks to us. So if we abide in him and his words abide in us, then he says, you will ask what you will and it will be done for you. Now, this is not a carte blanche promise that Jesus, God can be treated like a wish fairy who can grant any request. No, the sequence here is absolutely important. It is as we abide in him, in other words, get to know him, his nature, his person, his works, and his words abide within us. He speaks to us through his word. Then you see the very things that we want from him are going to change. This relationship and the revelation of the mind of Christ through the word of Christ to us continually modifies and shapes our very prayers so that what he says to us becomes the basis of what we speak to him about. This is the fundamental solution to the problem of words. We have to change the way we think about our prayers. Our prayers are not something we initiate, but rather a response to what God says to us through his word in the context of a relationship of intimacy with him. Can I say that again? Our prayers are not something we initiate, but rather a response to what God says to us through his word in the context of a relationship of intimacy with him. And we need to be convinced that this is not just for the specialists, it's not just for the pastors and the theologians, but it is for the ordinary person, it's for every single person sitting in this room. For example, in John chapter 6 verses 14, 16, 27, we read these words. I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I have other sheep that are not of this pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. Now, Jesus is talking about sheep. Who, who were the sheep? Everybody in, in that first century when he was there who was following him, he considered to be his sheep. And the vast majority of the people that were following him were not the academics, were not the learned, were not the skilled. They were the common people. It is about them that he says, they will hear me. They will recognize me. They will know me. There isn't one person here listening to me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are his sheep. Therefore, you can learn to hear his voice. You can learn to recognize that speech. And you can learn to speak back to him that way. If you belong to Jesus, this is the glorious possibility that there is for you. And as you learn to recognize his voice, as you learn to speak back to him, it will take your prayers way up from this dead, mechanical, Lord, you know, kind of praying to a dynamic two-way encounter with a living God that will transform your life. So here's the fourth and final conviction. God speaks to me through his word. I respond in kind and I'm transformed. God speaks to me through his word. I respond in kind and I'm transformed. For the rest of the message today, I want to just unpack for you the practical dimensions of how this works. But before I do that, I want you to listen to a testimony of a good friend of mine who broke through to this conviction that God speaks to him personally and how that completely transformed his interaction with God. And he is not a Bible scholar. He is not a pastor. He happens to be a, a successful businessman 
what we and I would call a layman, and I've had the privilege of knowing him for nearly 40 years as we have journeyed together in our walk with God. So, Joe, it's a real pleasure for you to have me here with you. Come and just share your testimony now. Thank you, Sundar. My name is Joe. And this little highlighter um, and others like it have changed and enriched my life and relationship with God. Let me explain. Much of my life, though I read the Bible faithfully, I just never heard God speak to me personally. Most of what I read were just words and most not very life transforming. Add to that that most of a Sunday's message I couldn't recall on Monday morning. No offense, Sunday. So how was God communicating with me personally and I with him? And what was I missing out on? That's what was concerning me. For instance, I never experienced the words of this hymn. A hymn we sang often. And this is what it said. He walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me I'm his own. I could imagine the walking with me, but I couldn't, I didn't hear him talk with me. I said, this was a familiar hymn to me, and that's all it was. Just beautiful words. I don't know when it began. The life-changing conviction and life-enriching realization that God was speaking to me. I just didn't hear him. I think I started sharing, or started hearing God's verse, uh, voice when I changed in, where it said in the Bible, us and we, to I and me. And where it says you in the plural, uh, to you, Joe. I personalized it. When I did that, the living word became alive for me. And I hear God's life-transforming voice speaking directly to me. Let me just quickly brief you on the living word. It was referred to as the living word. And this is the Bible. And you know, when I began to truly realize that this wasn't just the Bible, this was God's word to me, personally. And it was the living word. When I fully began to understand that, it began to live and it began to speak to me. Let me continue here. Okay? So this us and we and I and me is so important. And you, Joe, and here's what it says. Uh, and this little highlighter makes sure that I hear the voice of God and the voice of Jesus every day. And as a consequence, every day it pours its power into my soul and brightens and enlightens my life. Let me, let me give you a read here. Let me read the, a few verses the way I used to read them, but never heard God speak to me directly. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus says, The Helper will teach you all things. Yeah, you might say he was talking about the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Yeah, he was. But he's also speaking to you and me here today. Now let me personalize it for you. Personalize it says this, The Helper, Joe, will teach you all things. I mean, I, I had to ask myself before I even can say this, I had to ask myself, Joe, do you really believe what you really believe? You really believe. Because if I really believed what I think I really believed, I believe that this word of God cannot be wrong, and that the word of God is 100% 100, is 100 true, and that his promises are true, and that he says that when he will speak to us and with us and walk with us, that he will do that. Here's another one of the living word. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'd read that a thousand times and never heard God speaking to me personally with this. Personalized, it says this, brothers and sisters, but you, Joe, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Wow. You know, that doesn't make me conceited, but that's God's promise to me and to you. I've personalized it. And all of a sudden I heard him say, it's to you, Joe. And you know what it does? It humbles one. It just makes one, it, it, it strengthens one, it humbles one. And it says, and that's Jesus' promise given some 2,000 years ago to his followers then. And it's as true today for his followers now. And you and I belong to that group. There's another one. Let me read it to you. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Read it many times and accepted it as a truth. But just never tapped into its power until I personalized it. I hear God's voice. And it's life-changing. I have, and this is what it says, this, you know, I'm, I'm going to personalize it for you. But I have not given you a spirit of fear, Joe, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Last Tuesday's devotional was about Noah. Such a familiar story. I finished the scripture part and there was nothing highlighted. I knew I'd missed his voice. So I went back and saw it, as God's Spirit always shows me, where it said, this is what it said, and he walked faithfully with God. And God was asking me as I heard him speak, he says, how are you doing, Joe, with this faithful walk with me? Now this morning's devotional, I've read the whole thing and had highlighted nothing. So I went back looking for where I had missed hearing him. Then I found it where it said, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You say, oh, come on, Joe, you must, be, you must be kidding. With Moses, he'll be with you. I said, listen, I believe his word. And you know why I do that? Why I believe that? Because his word says that I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and will be like that forever. If he walked with Moses, who was a follower of him, he will walk with you and me here today. As I, I heard him speak, I heard him speak, and it's making my day. Every devotional and accompanying scripture, I read with my highlighter in my hand because I expect to hear his voice. When you get yourself, so you get yourself a highlighter and personalize the living word and you'll hear God speak to you. Amen. Now can you see, now can you see why this conviction is so crucial? That God speaks to me. So, how now does that actually work in practice? What's the nuts and bolts of this stuff? Well, first and foremost, start reading God's Word. Read all of His Word. You know what Jesus said? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
It's interesting that Jesus refers to his word as bread. What does that say to us? It says to us that his word is not primarily about information at all, but it's about something living and organic that actually feeds our souls. That's why in the Bible repeatedly we are told to eat God's word, just like we eat bread. Eating God's word is a powerful metaphor of ingesting and immersing ourselves in it. We're actually, if you want to put it another way, learning a language. We're hearing God speak to us so we can speak back to him. When we have international workers and other places who go to other countries to, to serve Jesus there and serve the people there in his name, one of the first things they have to do is to learn the language of the people. And how do they learn that language? They don't sit there until they get perfect at it. They immerse themselves in a language that they do not understand. And they keep on immersing themselves until they actually begin to hear. Then they start mumbling speech in that language very imperfectly, like a kindergartner school kid making all kinds of mistakes. And eventually they get better and better and better so they can hear what is being said to them in the new language and they can speak back fluently in that language. And that takes quite a while. Apply that to the word of God. If God's word is not just information, but is a voice of God speaking to us, then exactly the same thing works. You immerse yourself in the word of God that you do not hear as a voice, but initially just encounter as information. And you keep on immersing yourself in it until you begin to hear it as God speaking to you. And then however imperfectly, you start speaking back to God in the same language that you hear, however imperfectly, however many mistakes you might make, but as you continue doing it, you're getting better and better and better. And now your whole relationship is taken to a whole new level. Now you finally understand why that people used to say prayer is a two-way conversation. But you never knew that to be true. But this is how it happens. Immersion. You see, it, it requires a fundamental shift from reading God's word for information to listening to a person so you can relate to him. Can I say that again? It requires a fundamental shift from reading God's word for information to listening to the voice of God in the scriptures so you can communicate back to him as well. So choose some Bible reading program. And I'd say start very simply. If you're not in the habit of already doing it, Google read reading programs and choose one that perhaps just takes you to the New Testament. Jesus' words in the four Gospels and the various letters that were written by early church leaders. Much more modest reading and that will take you, do that in a year and just start immersing yourself in that portion. And then later you can start reading more and more in there. Now, as you do, here's the second thing that's important. You need to believe God that he will speak. This was the whole point of Joel's testimony, that God does speak to me. Recall John chapter 6, my sheep hear my voice, they know my voice. That's Jesus' promise. Recall that. Accept his invitation in Matthew chapter 11. And he said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. In, in those days, to take, upon, take a yoke of a rabbi meant to be taught by him. So, let him teach you. Claim his promise that the Holy Spirit will come to teach us and give us insight into God's word. All of that means that before you begin to read, pray. Ask Jesus to do what he promised to do. Remind him of his own promise that my, I am your sheep, Lord. And you said that I can get to know your voice. And you said you're going to send the Holy Spirit. You said to come to you and you will teach me. I'm taking your yoke. It's important. It's important. Don't just plunge into that word. 
ask Jesus to do what he said he would do. Turn that word into a living voice from God. You see, it is his job to speak, not ours. Our job is to listen. This is why, this is why if Joe didn't hear something, he would go all the way back because he was absolutely convinced that God has done his part. It was him who was not doing his part. To be able to read God's word and not have God speak to him is now inconceivable for Job. That's the power of that conviction that we're talking about. All right, so read, immerse, ingest, eat, believe, pray, ask him to speak to you. And then when he does, this is the next stage, speak back to him, taking your cues from him. I mean, isn't how, how, how normal conversation goes? Like, for example, if today at the beginning you had said to me, Hey, Sundar, it's nice to see you again after these four weeks. And I were to say to you, do you have some black shoe polish with you? You might be excused for thinking that either I'm deaf and I didn't hear what you said, or I'm unbelievably rude with only my own agendas and don't care what you're saying to me. No, that's not at all the way I would respond if it was normal. If it was normal, I would take my cue from what you said and I might say things like, hey, yeah, it's nice that I get to see you again. Or, it's good to be here, but I'm sad that this is going to be my last week. Or, boy, you should have seen the traffic coming here. But I was glad that I'm coming to this place, so I didn't mind enduring the traffic. Three very different responses, but they're all organically connected in a sensible way to what you first said to me. That's how ordinary speech goes, right? Well, it needs to go the same way with God. We don't read the Bible and pray and the twain shall never meet. That's why prayer is so dead. No, no, we read his word, we listen to his voice and we take our cues from him and speak back to him. As if he was sitting across the table from us, guess what? He actually is. <laughs> He's everywhere. So when you have your open Bible and you've asked him to speak, who do you think is speaking to you? He's sitting right there with you. Well, what would you say? If he suddenly showed up visible and said those things to you, what would you do? You would talk back, right? That's what prayer is. Talk back to him. And it's flexible. It's not a rote praying. It's flexible. Just as I illustrated to you, if you said to me, hey, Sundar, I'm glad to see you here. There are three very different responses I can give to you. This is nothing mechanical. That's what makes it real and alive. And now I'll give you some illustrations. So what does this actually look like? And I have to, of course, have to draw upon my own experience, right? Because these are actual conversations that I've had with God. And as I walk you through, I'm going to give you three examples, three very different kind of verses, how they have functioned in this way. That God speaks to me and I speak back to him in a way that is organic and not uh, scripted or mechanical and lifeless. Now, before I do that, though, I want to warn you of a reaction. Don't say, oh my goodness, this is not going to be possible for me. I could never see the thing that Sundar saw in those verses. Listen, I have been in language school for nearly 40 years. I have been doing this thing for four decades. Some of you are in your first lecture in language school. Obviously, you're not going to be able to do that. I couldn't when I was your, at your stage. All I want you to do if you're there is just listen. Catch the vision of what's possible. Let that possibility stir you up. Make a beginning, however imperfectly, and get going. That's my only goal, all right? So here are three illustrations, and I've drawn them all from recent experiences, so you know I'm not serving you warmed up leftovers from 20 years ago. It's still working this way in my life. For example, you might read a word that reveals something about God's nature or God's work. A couple of weeks ago, I happened to be reading in Job. <laughs> Not exactly a very promising book, right? To be all about a man suffering terrible illnesses and 
whatnot. Whoa, whoa, how can that inspire prayer? Let me show you. I didn't have to make it work, remember? His job is to speak. My job is to recognize and respond. So I read this in Job chapter 19. Oh, that my words were written. This is Job lamenting. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in a rock forever. Now, now this verse struck me. By the way, whenever something strikes you, whenever you are arrested by something, guess what? He's speaking to you. That's what it means. It's different language. When he said, boy, I was struck by that verse. He's drawing your attention to that. So notice when something strikes. Pause there. And here's what I began to think. I said, well, look at what Job is saying. Oh, that my words were written. Now, Job died. And he didn't know what had happened to this. How would Job know that 3,000 years later, probably, a 74-year-old Indian man walking the streets of Etobicoke, Ontario, would be listening to his words? Not written on stone, not even written in a book, but written in an electronic medium available to millions of people on something called the Internet. I was just overwhelmed. I was just blown away by the fact that Job's prayers, because God is eternal, outside of time, Job died, but his prayers had continually been going up to God. There was just a welling up within me, a praise to the fact that I serve such a sovereign God. I serve an eternal God, and every prayer that I've prayed is eternally rising up to Him, keeping on accomplishing His purposes maybe thousands of years later. I mean, is that mind-boggling or is it not? And then, and then once you get on that track, your mind goes elsewhere. By the way, whenever I say my mind goes elsewhere, guess what? Somebody is speaking. Someone is continuing to take my mind in that direction. It's his job to speak. I thought of John Calvin, the great English reformer. Do you know that Calvin was so gripped by the book of Job that over a one and a half year period, he preached 159 sermons on the sovereignty of God from Job. Did Job have any idea that one man was going to be influenced 2,500 years later because somebody wrote down his words? And so praise was my first appropriate response to this verse. And then I began thinking of the persecuted church because that's, a, that's a, one of the prayer burdens on my heart. There are five or six imprisoned pastors, uh, young and old, that I pray for regularly by name. And so I began to pray for them because they are now suffering the way Job suffered. And so after my praising God for his sovereignty, I interceded for these people. I prayed that they will have the same kind of effect, that their prayers will rise up to God, that they will also know that their prayers are not being wasted, that regardless of what happens to them, their prayers are going to be eternally rising up to God and they are going to impact other people down the line for decades and centuries. So those were sort of my first two responses. Praise and intercession were appropriate responses to this particular word from him. Then sometime later, I came across a different kind of verse. This time it is a word of wisdom. I happen to be reading in Proverbs. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is glory to overlook an offense. Well, it so happened at that particular stage in my life, I actually was in struggling in a particular relationship and something had happened and I was actually not angry but I was irritated. I was quite irritated and I was struggling with the temptation to nurse that irritation to keep it going because you know there's a perverse pleasure we sometimes have in continuing to be irritated or angry with somebody else. I was also struggling with whether I should say something to this person. Of course you really feel you want to right because you want your side to be made known to the people. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I read this Good sense. If I'm going to be a man of good sense, 
I cannot slow down my irritation. No, don't, don't, don't stir it up. Slow it down. And secondly, he says, it's your glory to overlook an offense. There is an actual real option before me of not saying anything and simply overlooking what happened to me. And thirdly, it says it's your glory. The word glory here means opinion. In other words, what kind of an opinion do you want? What, can you want? what kind of a man do you want to be known as? A man of good sense who knows how to live this way? Or do you want that glory, that temporary pleasure that comes from having your own way and getting back at the person who's irritating you? So these insights changed the way I prayed. So this time I prayed, I didn't pray praise prayers like I did from Job. This time I prayed prayers of confession. I confessed my proneness to irritation. I confessed that perverse desire to want to let the other person have a piece of my mind to be proved right in this situation. So I confessed those things. Then I pleaded with God for grace that he will put desires within my heart to be known as a man of good sense. That I would actually prefer that glory to the short-term pleasure of letting somebody have it, as it were. Completely different response, right? Very different kind of verse than Job. And instead of praise and intercession, this time it was confession and petition for myself. God sets the agenda, not me. This wasn't on my agenda when I started. But when, that, when I was stopped dead in my tracks by that verse, this is how I responded. So this time it was confession and petition. And then, by the way, God brought to my mind somebody else whom I know who was actually struggling with some very similar issues. And so I prayed for this person, that they will want to be known as a man or a woman of good sense. That they will slow down and tamp down their irritation and their anger. And they will actually consider it a live option from God to overlook the offense and therefore find freedom in their lives. And then just a third example. This time it can be a word of promise. Maybe you're reading in Paul's letters to the Philippians. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, let's say you read that. There are at least three different ways in which you can respond to God in prayer. Uh, maybe, maybe you have recently experienced, as it happened to me once when I was reading this text, a wonderful provision of God. In that case, gratitude and thankfulness becomes your response. You just simply thank God. Yes, God, this is true. Your word is faithful. I can trust in your word. Thank you for providing for me. And for anything else that might come to your mind as a result of that. So that's one way in which you can respond. Thanksgiving and gratitude. Or maybe you are in need at that time. But you're having trouble believing God. Maybe the need is significant. You say, can, can God really help? Well then pray for faith. In this case your appropriate response is not thanksgiving. But prayer for faith. Lord, I need to be able to believe this. If I believe that you are able to supply all my riches, I would feel calm. I would feel at peace. So please grant me faith. I can't even drum up the faith. You give me the faith. And then you can just pray for faith. Uh, maybe it's a job interview that's waiting for you. That might, Your mind might go in that direction. Very naturally flowing to that. You may pray for your work. You may pray for an interview that's coming up. Or you may pray that someone may be touched with your situation and God may release a spirit of generosity in somebody and bring you to their attention. That he will supply money from some unexpected sources. Those are all appropriate prayers. That's a second kind of prayer. Or maybe there's a third option. You, you neither are thankful for your own self because that's not primarily that's on your heart. Nor do you need any help at that moment so you're not praying for faith. But you think of somebody else. Maybe someone you know. Maybe the church that you're part of. That needs that. So you pray for them. You pray for faith that they might have. You pray for peace that comes from that kind of faith. You could pray that they will be grateful and not grumbling people in the meantime. That they'll be thankful for the things that they already have and not be complaining. 
And then all of it says, to God our Father be glory forever. And you can end all these praises by saying, and Lord, do it in such a way that you will get the glory. I'm asking you to meet my needs, not just so my life will be better, so I can tell everybody else what kind of a God I'm serving. Glorify your name. See again, this time, what kind of responses? Thanksgiving, petition, intercession, and all for his glory might be three very appropriate responses. I hope you're getting some idea of how this works. And I've given you three examples of single verses, very different in nature, inspiring very different kind of responses. Eventually, this can happen, not just with one verse of scripture, a paragraph, a whole chapter, sometimes whole books of the Bible, as you get better and better at language school, as you get better and skilled better and better. In fact, on tonight when you come to pray together, and I trust you've been marking down September the 29th. And by the way, I just heard that we've booked a larger room, not one that can hold 30 or 40, but one that can hold almost 200 people. Wouldn't it be amazing if we filled that room? Part of our exercise that evening is I'm actually going to teach you how to work through a longer section uh, of one of Paul's prayers and see how we can use that to pray. Now, having believed, having prayed, having heard and spoken to him, here's the last thing, persevere. As you persevere in this with that stumbling speech initially, as the word slowly becomes a voice, as you get better and better at the language both at the listening end and the speaking end, your vocabulary is going to increase. And you will have access to this kind of prayer vocabulary. You will never again be at the mercy of the Lord you know prayer. So if a mother like that were to ask you to pray, you would know how to knit scripture together right on the spot. One of the most amazing illustrations in the Bible is that of Jonah. For some of you who don't know the story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet of God and he was asked by God to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, one of the most cruelly oppressive kingdoms and they were Israel's enemies and so Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with this and Jonah ran in the opposite direction, took a ship and jumped off to a place called Tarshish. Well, God sent a storm in there and it became apparent Jonah basically confessed to the the sailors and the others who were terrified it's all my fault I'm running away from God please throw me overboard <laughs> and they did and the and as the story goes the seas calmed right away but Jonah was swallowed up in a belly of a big fish you know what Jonah does in the belly of a big fish not surprisingly he prays listen if you're in that situation you'd be praying too but here's what's amazing what we would have expected Jonah to pray in a setting like that is oh God please help me I'm in a mess right Lord, you know. What we are amazed at is what Jonah actually prayed. If you look at the record of Jonah's prayer, it's not a desperate, Lord, help me prayer at all. It's, it's a skillfully woven prayer where every sentence comes from one of the Psalms, but the entire one is not a quotation of any Psalm at all. Right on the spot, Jonah is able to knit together input from many, many different psalms and weave them all into a beautiful prayer right on the spot. That's glorifying to God and it's a large purpose prayer. See, Jonah as a good Israelite had prayed these prayers so many times that they became ready at hand in the heat of the battle and he could knit together a magnificent large purpose prayer right on the spot. Now you and I are probably not going to find ourselves in the Jonah-like situation, but this is what is available for us. As we remain in Jesus, 
as we let his word remain within us, as we learn to recognize initiating speech from God, as we let that shape our desires and our prayers, as we enter into this two-way conversation, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen to us. Now, one last question with that we finished. If you say, well, why does a sovereign God even need me? The same section in John where Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, the same section that began with, I am the vine, you are the branches, the same section that said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know how it finishes? It finishes with these words. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The bottom line agenda in all of this, prayer sustained by these four convictions that we've talked about, that life is war, that apart from Jesus we can do nothing, that something always happens when we pray, that an eternal God is outside of time and can conquer the tyranny of the urgent by transforming us in time, and that today, today's conviction that God speaks and we can speak back to Him. Prayer sustained by one or more of these convictions along the lines that I've described to you today is ultimately not for God's benefit, it is for your joy and for my joy. I want you to close, I want to close this whole thing by just a brief invitation to imagine. Imagine, imagine the three congregations, Upper Room Bolton, Upper Room Vaughan, and Upper Room King City, increasingly gipped by these four convictions, so that prayer steadily moves from being a belief to a value. Imagine, as a result of these growing convictions, individual and corporate prayer increasingly characterizing the life of this congregation. And then imagine minds for the whole three congregations, minds increasingly understanding God's word, hearts increasingly enjoying God's word, ears increasingly hear his voice speaking back to us, and mouths that increasingly speak back to him out of his own word, and all for his glory and for our joy. That is the prospect that lies before us. As the worship team comes to lead us in the closing song, let me pray for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have rescued us from religiosity that kills. The, the sheer boredom of ritual and meaningless prattle, talking at God, having our devotions, making it sound like we're taking medicine. Thank you that you have rescued us from that and you are inviting us into a journey, a communication with the living God where your voice shapes the very desires and longings of our heart and that we are actually engaged in a regular two-way communion with you that leaves us transformed and uses our lives to touch and transform others. Because at the drop of a hat, Lord, we can usher people into the presence of the living God, as like Jonah, we begin to skillfully weave a prayer together that is based on what you have said to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I think that was coordinated better, right? Yeah. Okay, thank you.